Good morning, everyone. You can open your Bibles to the book of Haggai, kind of a tiny book, shortly before the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We're going to read from Haggai chapter 2. So good to be worshiping with you this morning, seeing a profession of faith, seeing so many people use their spiritual gifts. Uh, It's just a joy to be together in God's house with you today. Um, As Pastor Dirk prayed, our family's hoping to be able to return to Uganda by September, around the 1st of September is our desire. We've kind of set that before the Lord and started praying for that specifically, and we invite you to pray with us. Um, There's still some medical things that we're working through, so we we do need God's help um, in order to be able to go back by September, but that's our hope, it's our desire, and it's been really exciting for us that even while we're here, we see God is still working through the team in Uganda. Um, The prison ministry in particular has continued to grow and expand, and it's exciting to me because it's really prison wardens that are making it grow. Um, They talk amongst the wardens from different prisons, and word has kind of gotten around, and so the, the administrations from different prisons have contacted our team members and invited them into different prisons. And um, this month also a number of officers from the Soroti prison where we've ministered for about five years now, the officers themselves have asked to be trained in how to do discipleship because they recognize they're going to be transferred to different prisons and they want men in those new prisons to also be able to learn God's word. And so we just praise God for the way that this ministry has continued to grow. And I'm also excited that the village ministries, um, discipleship groups in villages have resumed. The Ugandan government has also started to relax the COVID restrictions, and um, discipleship groups have formed in 10 new villages now. So I'm, I'm just praising God that that has started back up again. You know, when something is shut down for nine months, you never know if it's going to take off again. And I just praise God that the moment... The government allowed it, the team was ready, and churches and and pastors in different villages were also desiring to be discipled. And we also recognize that you in this church, you in this community have gone through a very difficult season, and our hearts have ached with yours. And so I just want to recognize that this morning and say we're sorry for the death of loved ones, and we love you and mourn with you. This morning we're going to look at the book of Haggai. This isn't a passage you would typically think of for Pentecost Sunday, Um, but I want to give you a little bit of background on this text. It's it's kind of unique, the background for this text, because the context, the historical context is that Haggai is preaching to a people that have been obedient. I could say 95% of the The passages in the books of prophecy are directed to people who have been disobedient. But in this text, Haggai is talking to an obedient group of people. About 65 years before this passage was written, God had sent the Babylonian army into Judah. They had destroyed the wall of Jerusalem. They had burned the houses in Jerusalem. They had destroyed the temple killed many people and taken the majority of those who survived as captives to Babylon. 
About 50 years later, Cyrus became king. Uh, he was king of Persia. The Persians had taken over from the Babylonians by that time. And Cyrus decreed that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So about 50,000 Jews had gone back to Jerusalem and with great joy they had laid the foundation for the new temple. But then the neighbors of Jerusalem saw what was happening and they began to oppose this work. And the work quickly came to a halt. But it really wasn't so much because of the pressure from the neighbors because the king had decreed the temple could be built. So if the Jews really wanted to build it, they could have made it happen But it was really about wrong priorities. The Jews were content to work on their own houses to do things to benefit their own families. So for more than 10 years, the work on the temple just kind of stalled and stagnated and never really progressed. And then a new king, Darius, came to power. And shortly after that, Haggai came and rebuked the people of Jerusalem. And he said, you work hard, but you never have enough because God is not blessing your work because his house remains a ruin. And so in chapter 1, verse 12, we read that these people obeyed the word, the voice of the Lord, and they resumed the work on the temple. And I just want to point that out and just challenge us. I mean, how often don't we hear God's word preached or taught or read something at home and think, wow, that's a really good point. That's really interesting. You know, we really ought to do this or that, and yet there it remains just a good intention, and we fail to put it into practice. But these people, this context, they were obedient. So let me invite you to stand, and we're going to read Haggai chapter 2 from verse 1 up to verse 9. It says, in the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Here is the reading of God's word. You can be seated.
Verse 1, it says it was the 21st day of the seventh month. Now that's not July 21. The Jews followed a lunar calendar, so it was a different month. But the 21st day of the seventh month was significant in their calendar because it fell in the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a, a time of celebrating God's provision. A time of remembering how God had provided for them through His presence as they traveled from Egypt, the land of slavery, the land of bondage, to the promised land many years earlier. And it had also become the harvest festival. Um, Pentecost occurred at the beginning of the harvest, but the Feast of Tabernacles occurred at the end of the harvest as people brought their tithes and their gifts to the house of God to worship. And it was during this time, the Feast of Tabernacles, that Solomon, many generations before, had also dedicated the great temple in Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord that had been destroyed by the Babylonians and that they were now rebuilding. So this was a very significant time in the, the calendar of the Jews. A time when they were remembering how God had been with them and provided for them. And in the context of that, we meet the characters of our story today. And there's three of them mentioned, but they're always mentioned in a group. So I, I kind of want to treat them as one. The first one is Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Now Zerubbabel is not a name we hear very often today. It means born in Babylon. In all likelihood, Zerubbabel was indeed born in Babylon as a captive. But now here he is, governor of the Jews in the land of Judah. He's from the line of David, David's family line. And so he's, he's bringing back, in a sense, the covenant promise that God had made to David that one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne. And we can't dismiss the fact that it calls him the son of Shealtiel because up to this point, every time he's mentioned in the book of Haggai, that phrase, the son of Shealtiel, also is there. So he's, he's you who were born in Babylon, but... Shealtiel means I have asked God. You were born in Babylon, but because you've asked God, here you are back in Judah, again sitting on the throne as governor of Judah. You were, in a sense, broken, but now you've been restored. You were in ashes, but now it's a thing of beauty. You were in bondage, but now you've been restored to freedom. You went through pain, but now you're in a place of blessing because you have asked God. Joshua, as the next character mentioned, means the Lord is salvation. How did you move from Babylon, the place of pain and brokenness, back to Judah? It's because the Lord is salvation. It's by His righteousness. That's what Jehozadak, the father of Joshua, means. The Lord is righteous. It's through His righteousness that the Lord has brought about our salvation. And the third character, you remnant of the people. The King James says, you residue of the people. You, you small minority, you leftovers. Now, we heard a moment ago that 50,000 Jews came back from Babylon to Judah to rebuild the temple. And, you know, coming from a place like Falmouth, we might think, wow, 50,000 people in one place, that's a lot of people. And it is. I agree with that. But remember that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, there was 600,000 men counted. 
plus the women and children. So without doubt, they were numbered in the millions. And now here they are, just 50,000. So humanly speaking, these people lacked power. They lacked strength. In their own eyes and in the eyes of their enemies around them, they looked weak and they felt vulnerable. But remember, they were obedient. And to these people, Haggai asked the question in verse 3, Who of you is left? That word left is the same as the word remnant or residue. Who of you, these leftover people, who of you is left who remembers the temple that used to stand here? And when you compare that temple with the one you're building now, doesn't it feel like it's nothing today? Doesn't it feel like it lacks anything impressive? Like, it's not very grand what you're doing. Now remember, the other temple had been, had been destroyed 65 years earlier. So anybody who was left that remembered the other temple was at least in their 70s, if not in their 80s. And sometimes, as a, children, when you, as a child, when you see something, it looks grand and impressive and huge. And when you go back as an adult, sometimes you're like, wow, my perspective has changed. But for these people, there really was a difference. In Ezra chapter 2, we read about the resources used for building this temple. The amount of gold and the amount of silver. And we can compare that with 1 Chronicles 29 where you read about the materials used for building Solomon's temple. For this newer temple, it was captives who had donated from their own revenue for the building of the temple. And they had donated around a half a ton of gold. I mean, we, we measure the value of gold in ounces today. So that sounds like a lot. 1,100 pounds of gold and three tons of silver. But for the original temple, David himself, never mind the other people who also donated, David himself had donated 110 tons of gold and 260 tons of refined silver. So the difference between the original temple and this temple was indeed significant. Now I know some of you are sitting there and you're looking at me and you're like, Josh, so what? It's really hard to connect with a building project that took place 2,500 years ago. But how often haven't we, as a church, we as a people, we as a team, we as a family, or maybe you as an, as an individual, how often haven't we done something and we look at what we're doing and we just feel like disappointed? It lacks pizzazz. It lacks glory. It lacks anything impressive. It just seems insignificant. But this passage reminds us it's not our decorations. It's not our achievements. It's not our measurables that make something glorious. It's God's presence in something that makes what we do glorious. In verse 8, God says, the gold is mine, the silver is mine. God is he's telling them, I provided for the first house, I can provide for this house, but 
the gold in all the world is mine. I don't really need your gold. And then in verse 9, he says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. So be strong. He told them three times in verse 4, Be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel, you who were born in that place of pain, but now you've been restored. Be strong, Joshua, you who are saved by the Lord. Be strong, you leftover people. And do the work. How can you say that, God? How can you say when our resources are so limited and what we're doing seems to lack significance or anything impressive by human standards? How can you say the glory of this house is going to be greater than the glory of the former house? It's because God's presence was going to be in that house through Jesus. In verse 7, he says, Once more, I will shake all the nations. So the treasures of all nations will come in. When I was preparing for this message, I was using the NIV, and it said, What is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. What is desired by all nations, or here it says the treasures of all nations. And that Hebrew word, it can mean treasures, plural, but it can also mean the thing that is treasured or the one that is treasured. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 23, it refers to Daniel, the one who was highly esteemed. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 20, again the same Hebrew word is referring to King Saul as the one desired by all Israel at that time. In Malachi 3, verse 1, the same root word, and it's referring to the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. This one who's desired by all nations is Jesus. And if after God has said, in this house I will bring more glory than in the former house, because the one who's desired will be here, he says um, also in verse 9, in this place I will grant peace, shalom, fullness. And Colossians 2 verse 10 says, in Christ we have been given fullness. Many, many years later, when Jesus entered this temple, though still carried by his mother and father as a 40-day-old baby, there was an old man of God named Simeon in the temple, and he took one look at Jesus, and he grabbed him and said, Lord, you may now dismiss me in peace. Just as God said, in this place, I will grant peace. You can dismiss me in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. Now granted, we don't always see the glory of something in the time frame that we desire. If you go back again to verse, uh, verse 6. God says, once more, in a little while, I'm going to do something. He's reminding us that His time frame is different than our time frame. I mean, we came to America last January. And in our time frame, 
We expected to be here for four months. We're still here, obviously. I forget what it's been now, 16 or 17 months. But after six months, after 12 months, after 16 months, here we are crying, Lord, how long? It took 500 years for God to fulfill this prophecy in Haggai. His timing is different than our timing. But make no mistake about it. When we're measuring how significant something is, how impressive something is, the degree to which there's glory in that thing is exactly parallel to the degree which God is in that. When God's presence and God's Spirit is in something, there is glory and significance in that. Regardless of how much gold and silver we use to do something, if God's presence is not in it, there's no glory in it. And so he says in verse 4, be strong and work. So I want to ask, what is our work as a church right here in this community, this place, at this time? This is where God put us. Where is our community? I mean, what is our work in this community? You know, you can study theology and missions for years, and you can't say it any better than Maggie said it this morning. In the love of Jesus, to share the word of God with people. That's it. That's our work. With our neighbors, with people in the local jail, with people who are sick and in the hospital, with people going through injustice and experiencing injustice, with people who are hurting, growing at a crossroads, with new opportunities, with young people. It's to show the love of Jesus and to share the Word of God with people. I don't know if you've noticed, but this message so far has been like a snapshot, a photograph of what our churches are today. I mean, we focus really on three things so often. We we focus on pain and suffering. You who were born in Babylon, you who feel like what you're doing is insignificant, we, we focus on our struggle and on our fears. If you don't believe me, just listen to prayer requests sometime and, and to what people pray. We, we spend so much time praying for the difficult things we're going through. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's one of the things we focus on. It's human nature. We focus on Jesus. And we should. He's the cornerstone. He's, he's the centerpiece. He's the linchpin. He's the one that holds us all together. And without Him, we will fall apart. With Him, we can have hope even in the face of death. But without Him, Paul says, we should be pitied more than anyone else. So it is right for us to focus on Jesus. And we focus on what we need to do as a church. We focus on what God wants us to do as individuals. And it's important that we understand that. But if we stop there, we miss a crucial point and we jump right past a very profound truth. And it's a truth that we celebrate today. Back in verse 4, be strong, you who were born in the place of suffering. Be strong, you who were 
saved by the Lord. Be strong, all of you people, and do the work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt long, long ago. When you came out of the place of slavery and death. This is the covenant I made with you then. And my spirit remains among you. So do not be afraid. Yeah, you who sinned. So I sent you prophets again and again. Yeah, it's true, I allowed the temple to be destroyed and your city to be burned, and I allowed you to be disciplined as captives in Babylon. I allowed you to come back, and I've restored you, and I'm allowing you to rebuild this temple. Yeah, it's true, I brought you to this land of prosperity, and I've allowed you many years of economic growth. And I've also allowed you times of recession and economic hardship. I've allowed you times of good health and enjoyment, and I've allowed you times of sickness and pain and even the heartache of death. But I am with you. And my spirit remains among you. So do not be afraid. And if you read the book carefully, and it's only two chapters, there's a significant, though subtle, shift that takes place right in the middle of that truth. In this chapter, every time it mentioned God, before He reminded us that He is with us just as He promised. Every time it mentioned God, it called Him the Lord. All capital letters, L-O-R-D, it's that Relational name for God, Yahweh. But once he has reminded us, I am with you. My spirit remains among you. From there going forward, he refers to himself as the Lord. Still the relational covenant name of God. The Lord of hosts. That word host is a, means kind of has the idea of armies. The Lord of heaven's armies. The, the, the New International Version translated as the Lord Almighty. Don't forget, I am with you. My spirit remains among you. And by the way, I am the Lord who leads the armies of heaven. I'm with you. I'm working among you. I don't just command you to go out there and do what you're supposed to do in your own strength. No, I am there with you as the leader of heaven's armies. I remember the first day I went to do prison ministry. My kids are probably tired of this story because I tell it often, but it's profound to me. You walk up to this prison that holds 650 inmates. It's multiple buildings. There's fencing all the way around it. Big metal doors that you can open and a dump truck can drive through because when they bring their food, they bring it in a dump truck. So they can, I mean, it's big doors. 
But they're solid metal, and there's a window about. There's over that little window, and eyeballs come up to the window. And I'm like, hi, I'm here for the Bible study. And I had been asked to do a Bible study, and in my naive, you know, Western thinking, I'm thinking 20 or 30 inmates. And the window goes shut again. You hear click, click, clang, clang, clang as all the locks are unlocked, and they open the door for me. And it, it creaks just like you think a metal door would. And you step through, and it clangs behind you. And there's a, an entryway then of about 15 feet, and there's another set of those big doors, but this time they're not solid metal. They're, they're barred with one-inch um, galvanized pipes welded together. You can see through there the rest of the prison. And there's not 15 or 20 inmates waiting for a Bible study. There was about 250 waiting. And I was terrified. The officer takes me up and clang, clang, clang as the, unlock, the door is unlocked again. And he opens the door and I step through and I hear the clang behind me. I turn around. He's still on the other side of the door. I said, aren't you going with me? I'm trying, I mean, you know, paraphrasing here. But he's like, nope, you're on your own. Honestly, the thought that went through my mind was, I could leave. Nobody there knows my name. They'll never know who stood him up. But by the grace of God, I was reminded I am with you. The Lord of heaven's armies. We have a team now in Uganda that heard what God was doing in that prison. Not one of these guys finished high school. And yet, they've learned God's word. They know Jesus. And they said, we want to share God's word in prisons in our area. And so now we have men working in eight prisons. By human standards, they're unimpressive. Not one of them went past 10th grade. But they understand the Lord of heaven's armies is with them. So what does God want you to do in this community yeah, it's important to figure that out, but it's important we don't focus on that. What we need to focus on is what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday, that my spirit remains in you. My spirit remains among you. And the Lord Almighty says, whatever you want to do for God, whatever you know God is calling you to do for Him, I am with you. Let's pray. Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies, Lord God Almighty, forgive us for the years we have spent building our own houses instead of building your house. And forgive us for the years we have spent 
trying to serve you out of thanksgiving, but in our own strength. Forgive us for giving into fear and resisting to do what we know you want us to do. So Lord, today we just celebrate that your Holy Spirit remains in us. And anew and afresh, here and now, we simply say, Lord, we are yours. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Every time we finish a worship service in the prison, we share these words. I want to share them with you today. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God the Father. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be with us all for now and evermore. Amen.